1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson, and today we got a really neat show. We're going to really dive into the affordable housing space and give you some really good nuggets of why that particular set of housing in the multifamily spaces, what's working in in particular, why it makes sense, and then also an overall plethora of good nuggets and information and takeaways that you're going to want to use and put it in your business. But before we introduce our next guest, I just want to let you guys know that we are getting ready to start our next Kahuna Boardroom. It's going to be this spring, probably February or March. We've not launched it yet, but we should be launching it soon. The gates to open up and allow you start getting in and purchasing tickets to come to that event. That is usually an event that I do one time a year. We're going to do it twice this coming 2023. It's one that you're going to want to be paying attention too. so hopefully the next two weeks we'll have that fully open and the cart ready to get you in so I'm just precursing it now but so let me tell you about our next guest His name is Jason. Jason's been in the business. He's been investing in real estate for over 10 years. He started with single family homes and he's since moved into the multifamily space. He scaled his portfolio to over a 1,000 multifamily units in just like a few short years. He grew up in a lower class family, so he's like me, started from the bottom, now we're here. He's always been mindful of his tenants that he served. So that concern led him to transitioning his company into the affordable housing space, which is, he is now an expert. So before that, he was 11 years in the software and development business, has a bachelor of science degree in computer science, and went to the University of Memphis. So, and here, the most important part of him And I think that I am actually very proud of is that he served as a Marine and the the Marine Corps. So with that, Jason, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. So when we talk about affordable housing, I think people usually go one or two ways. Like, yeah, no. Or they'll say probably what you say is, hell yeah, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And why is that? Why do you think that is? I don't know. But that's the two actions I
2: always get it. It's got a bad stigma or reputation associated with it, right? So a lot of people, they think about affordable housing. They immediately think the ghetto hood is going to be lower down projects, what have you, right? Lower income tenants, people that aren't working, people that don't take good care of properties, and they just get government assistance, right? And so it's not appealing to a lot of people for that reason, because they're like, why would I want to have anything to do with that? In reality... Affordable housing is a much broader scope, right? It's not just for Section 8. It's not just for people who aren't working at all. It really is where we focus at is a subsidy, right? Or the government assisting in tenants. And so we cater to people who have jobs. So think about a few months ago, we called them all essential workers, right? Your waitress, hostess, school teachers, policemen, people who have jobs, but they just aren't making a lot of money, right? So that they can't afford whatever, $2,500 in monthly rent, right? Which some apartment complexes, depending on where you are in the country, charge. So what affordable housing is, is basically trying to limit their rental expenses to 30% of their income. And you have government programs that help you do that. And so that's where we specialize at.
1: Yeah, that's a whole different type of tenant. That's not someone that's just not trying to destroy because that's usually the, that is the stigma. In affordable housing, there's a lot of different subsets is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And so particularly, give us an example of Well, before we get that, hold on, we got to do this. We need to check and a word from our sponsors.
0: At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. If you want to learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room.
1: All right, we're back. So... Jason, let's jump into, before we kind of get too much involved in it, can you give everybody like a little bit of your backstory and just kind of how you got to where you're at now? And before we get into a little bit more of the details of the affordable housing space. Absolutely, Corey. So as you
2: mentioned, grew up lower income, came from a small town, was really trying to just better myself. Right. And so left there, joined the Marine Corps right at 18 years old. Right. So did four years in the Marine Corps. Shout out to any Marines that are watching. From there, I was really just trying to figure out how I can earn some money, man. So much as they say Marine Corps has its perks, but you're not going to be rich, right? So I left out of the Marine Corps, went and got a degree in computer science and then started doing software development. So I was government contracting in the Washington DC area, read that little purple book, Rich Dad Poor Dad, I was like, all right, I'm doing this all wrong. I need to go fix some things, start investing in real estate. So I started in single family, spent years in single family, never had a massive portfolio. It was just like solopreneur, buying a house every now and then when I could. But really what I saw is, well, I took a break. And when I came back and actually just said, let me get back into real estate. I put pen to paper and said, how many of these single family homes do I need? And that's when the light bulb went off. I had a little mini depression going on because I was like, there's no way I want to take the next 20 years to try to buy enough single families. That's when I found multifamily. So started in in multifamily, again, doing it by myself, right? Started with 134 unit, then got into syndication and scaled And was doing everything market rate where I felt like I was providing real value to the tenants. So when we could go in, and maybe there was just dirty carpets a dingy, really just areas that weren't the best for tenants to be living in, and we could clean those up and getting those thank yous from residents, right? That was fulfilling to me. What I found is like it was harder and harder to do deals like that because the market kept right. going up. And in order to be able to make numbers work, be able to pay our investors, you had to start pushing rents further and further. So I always had sort of a heart. I mean, the way I grew up, I had more in common probably with the tenant who's struggling to make money than I did necessarily with the investor who drove $250,000 checks, right? That's just the
1: nature of my family and all, so. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you
2: get it, you know what I mean?
1: I understand that's true, yeah, exactly. In what condition? that's how we are. That's where we grew up and so, it was not never easy exactly so
2: with that i was like well how can you help people that aren't making that much money and i I explored different avenues finally had to bite the bullet and just say hey let me learn this affordable housing space to see how it works And it really took a lot of what I was doing with market rate development and just flipped it on its head. But what I found is a a different model, almost would consider it even a different asset class, even though it still is multifamily, but it has some unique components to it. And I think that. Overall, what it does really matches with where my heart is when it comes to trying to provide you know safe affordable housing.
1: What do these units look like that you buy now and how do you turn them into affordable housing? Yeah, so
2: we actually don't turn them in, right? I mean, it's something that we've looked at, but at this point, we buy existing affordable housing complex. So I'm not a developer. The portfolio I built was off existing complexes and we would buy them, renovate them and then sell them. And so what happens in the affordable housing space is usually starts with a developer who's building something out of the ground and they build it and they work with governments and local agencies and build it up. And that has a 15 year compliance period with it and usually
1: tax credit, right? Yeah. it's a huge tax credit for them. Yes, exactly.
2: And then it's also maybe a extension of compliance period and what a lot of market rate developers do is they look for those apartments that are coming out of the compliance, right? Because they're usually well below market and then they can take them out of compliance and they can bring them to market and they make significant amount of income. What we're doing is basically buying those properties and holding on to them. And what we find is that there's still cash flow plays, there's still value add plays, and we also have the option of restarting the process of tax credits all over again. And so we basically gear this thing back up, if possible, for another 15 or 30 years again.
1: Is that because you're gonna buy it right at the end and then you're gonna to, to redo it, or do you, is it done with on the purchase when you buy it? No, so initially,
2: when these properties come out of compliance, the owner, it has the free rent, do whatever they choose to. So most of them, right. they'll take it to market and they'll sell it and they get a nice payday, right? Because they've owned it for 15 years. And when you get into how it's structured, there's a lot of bank debt and equity partners that are no longer really concerned with the value of the property. So the owner, right? They do pretty well. When they sell it, they're free to do whatever, but the restrictions stay with the property. So what we do is we buy them knowing about the restrictions, but- what we're allowed to do is go into that government agency and say, hey, this is a property, but now it's 15 years old or 18 years old, 20 years old, whatever it is. Now we want to go in and revamp it, refresh it, and then renew it for another period of time. Another
1: 15? For yeah. another
2: 15 or 30 years, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. So basically taking one that's getting totally off, but then you're saying the value at play to bring it to market rent versus where it's been 15 years ago, it was capped at, This rate, even though they allow increases every year, it's still not what market is. So, it's still way below market. So, you're going to say you're trying to buy those right at the tail end, still keep it the same play, but now you're going to say, we're going to go renovate these units. Now, we've brought it to a higher level of the market, right? Is that what I'm understanding? Right. So, there's two
2: approaches that we can take, and we usually try to check both of these. So, one is we can go in and try to work with the government agency, renew it, What you were just talking about. Right. But working with government agencies isn't necessarily a sure thing, right? They could be, they could take long, you get delayed, they could not choose to award the contracts, right? Because these things can get competitive. So what we found is just, as you mentioned, how there is a lag in between where the market may be, even though it's affordable, and where the property is. So we look for value add plates, just like your regular market rate deal. And if we find that that works, that's our first pursuit. And we'll do a value add on and we can get rent out of it. And it's nice, but there's less competition because not a lot of people understand them. Or as you mentioned in the beginning, they just hear affordable housing or whatever, and they run away.
1: And they're out. Yeah, exactly. They're cut and paid. Like I got to think that the amount of people that are looking for that, or it's a lot fewer, it's a fewer it's a smaller pool with people that are looking for that type of product, right? Right. So instead of 30. But everybody's looking for market rate stuff. So if you switch it, that's great. But if not, you still work with a the city. There's a tax credit play. of putting it back into the system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's where it really gets interesting. Cash flow, long-term hold play as well is what you're saying. Right. you bought it. You're buying it at the tax credit rate now anyways. Like where it was operating at, it's got to be, it's got to make sense for you to buy it as an investor, right? Right. Yep.
2: Yeah. So a lot of people think like it's not charity at all, right? We're definitely still providing a business and serving investors just as well as the tenants. Right? Yep. So, I mean, that's how it works. So we look for that model, right? To see, see if you see, we got a value add, and then we will usually hold it. And if we know, if we think we're going to get credits, we really just hold on to the property. We don't necessarily do much, But then on for an investor in that, right, the way it will look, maybe a year before we get the tax credits. Right. So our investors stay in that project for a year, maybe maximum two years. And then we go in and basically do an equity swap. So our investors would leave and then we bring in the tax credit equity and, and, you know, everyone gets a return based off of that.
1: Okay, right. So that's the piece. That's where everybody's hanging on, because during the beginning, there's probably not getting a whole lot of payment out of it. They're just waiting for that function to happen.
2: Right. So what we do is we have a value add play. As I mentioned, we're looking for things that have value add potential. A lot of times, though, what we see is that because there's such high demand for tax credit deals or income restricted properties, we can get rent pops without having to do a lot. So we try to right. conserve our capital investment as much as possible. But when we get the government involved, then we're going all out, man. Then it's like, hey, now let's rip out everything that's not going to last 15 years. And so it's a pretty substantial rehab. This is why it works, because you couldn't do this on a market rate. In a market rate deal, you probably go put in six, seven grand on these deals, and then you have to turn them, you'd sell them to somebody else, and they'd have to come in and maybe do the same thing in a different area, right? But when you work with the government, their typical investment into these is on the low end is 25000 But probably 40, more like $40,000 a door. And so you're really taking these products and making them pristine. So that's why I talk about the statement. Most people think that when you see these properties, oh, it's a tax credit deal, so it's going to be run down. No, it's actually quite the opposite. They've got- new- It's like the Taj Mahal in there. Yeah, right. It's got new <laughs> latest upgrades. We do exterior amenities, all those. Environmental friendly, right? Yes, everything, right? Yeah, yeah. So it really is a, a good product and it's there for the long term. So that's some of the benefits to it.
1: Yeah, that's super super interesting. You can tell how much I know about it. So I'm like, wait a second. I'm asking lots of questions, right? I don't do it, and I find it fascinating that there's things where I'm like, man, maybe I should learn that. Maybe I should take the time to understand it more, right? We all get in our little lane. And we kind of hit that. That's why I love this podcast because there's lots of ways to make money in real estate, and Jason's given us a great example of what something else looks like in that affordable housing space. So what other things do you really like about it? Because I always hear about like, oh man, dealing with the tenants, the tenants are horrible. What's your experience there? Yeah.
2: I mean, you definitely have to screen your tenants like you do in, in any, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a difference in between C-class property and necessarily tax credit property. Yeah. tenant class is going to be the same. Now,
1: Well, and your open was, you said there's lots of working people Right. So that's just part of the screening process. Right. Right. Part of the screening
2: or the compliance level is that they can't make too much money. So if you're making $150,000 a year, depending on what area you're in, right, that may be affordable if you're in San Francisco or something. Right. You make 150 grand, you still need help. But in most areas, right, if you're making that type of money,
1: you're not staying at
2: that price. You need to go stay somewhere else. Right. That's how the government views it. This is for people, if you're making it 50, 60 grand or so, depending on the area, right? That's where you get into the affordable piece of it.
1: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And which is like the perfect tenant, right? It's like, hey, someone's got a job. They're trying to do better. It's just hard to afford with what they're making. And for them, that's a win win because I'm sure once they get into your property, the last thing they want to do is vamonos right? Is have to get kicked out. Right. That's one of those things too. And th- you're staying at Taj Mahal, bro. Yeah. You're
2: like fighting to stay in. Right. And that's the thing. So a lot of the properties, if you make that type of money, there's only a certain amount of properties in your area that are going to have affordability component to it. So if right. you are in a property but and it's affordable, you may go to another property that's not near as nice, but that's your new rent. You know what I mean? Like that's your new area because other than that, you got to go to a market rate property where the tenant may not qualify or they gotta pay you're not gonna have it. Yeah. Yeah, three, four hundred dollars, right? 50% of their income on rent. So yes, you do have to cater to people who aren't making a lot of money, but screening can allow you to have good tenants that want long term so oftentimes our properties are full to capacity right there's a waiting list on other people to get in yes you do have your bad apples i don't want to make it seem like it's all rosy but you have
0: to work are you ready for retirement the majority of americans are not failing social security and dated financial planning practices put strains on many retirees finances 46 percent of americans admit they are not taking steps to prepare for the likelihood they outlive their retirement savings. Luckily, it's not too late. Diversify your portfolio. At Kahuna Investments, we partner with passive investors to create award-winning communities families love to call home. To learn more about our company and our process, go to www.kahunainvestments.com and click the deal room.
1: Every property has that.
2: Yeah. For what you gain, it's definitely worth the extra headache.
1: Listen, most properties are not even 98, 99% occupied. They're like 93, 94, right? right? So that little 3% you have to deal with for some of the idiot tenants that you get in a lot whatever, who cares, right? Because you're getting all the cream when you're at 99% occupancy or stay and with a waiting list, like that's the best that you could ask for. And so dealing with a couple of honorary tenants and whatever, like if that's the only price you got to pay, you're like, dude, let me hit the easy button.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Bam. <laughs> so let's talk about the money, raising capital for these types of deals. So when you first started, you are like, hey, I was doing it all on my own. And then you said you transitioned to syndication. Yeah. What was that like in having to raise capital for your deals? And how did you do it? Yeah. Well, how I did
2: it was very poorly. So getting started, I fell into that mantra of like, hey, you find a deal, the money will come. First deal, I- Which is a big myth, right? Yeah, it is. And I mean, I think it's two-sided, right? Yeah, the money will come, but the money's not going to come if nobody knows you. The money's not going to come if nobody likes you or trusts you. So it can come, but you also need to be doing something to help.
1: You got to do all the work. You got to build that forest, man. And people got to know and see you, like you, trust you. Yeah. So on my first deal,
2: I did not have an investor database. I didn't have any marketing. I purchased a deal. I didn't even start talking about the deal until after it was on the contract. And even after on the contract, I didn't start talking about it until after I finished like 30 days of due diligence. And then I was like, okay, got the due diligence done. Now let me start raising money and he didn't go it was well, a little right it to well it to the was- party yeah was yeah. little late
1: to the party huh yeah
2: i quickly got out under the gun well just to tell you completely like i had one investor who came out and it was like hey i'm going to put 250,000 into it and i only needed about 500 grand for this so i'm thinking okay well, this is going to be a cakewalk. and then i got some a few other investors and so i really wasn't worried about it what happened to me though is once we got closer to closing that 250 went down to 100 grand and that left me a gap. Yep. And then eventually that hundred grand went down to zero. And so that left me a super gap. A
1: chasm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So <laughs> I scrambled. I mean, I had called everybody I knew to call. I, I had done everything I knew to do. And I was really stuck, man. So that's how it started, right? In that story, I ended up connecting with other groups, just calling everybody that I knew in the business and finally was able to find somebody that said, hey, I can help you with this right? Because they because they saw the deal. So eventually it did work out, but I had to close that property because I had my earnest money down and I already had exercised my attention. So I ended up just taking all my money out of my account and asked my
1: wife for her 401k. You closed it and you backfilled it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just threw everything I had. And so, but since then, right, the way we do it, it is more streamlined, right? Thought leadership platform, trying to talk to investors, talk about what we're doing ahead of time so we can build that list
1: truly it was uh, raising money i always say one of the biggest skill sets that separate single family to multifamily is the skill set of raising capital it is by far the most valuable skill set you'll ever learn and it pays itself in spades once you've seasoned yourself and created a track record right and so you're well on your way you know a thousand units you've definitely proven that and do you feel like it gets easier to raise money along the way or do you feel like it's the same? Not really. And I mean, I, I say that because each deal
2: we do usually is bigger, right? So if we go yes. down to the, to some smaller deals, right? If you go raise for a 300 unit and then you got to raise for, I don't know, an like 80 unit or something, then yeah, right? You'll feel it. But as you start, right? I've been growing, right? And so it's always like, how oh, can we raise this? And, and it's always a challenge because I don't know how your database
1: is, but mine, you always try to say, no, so Jason, it's the same answer. I have the same exact answer. Yeah. I'm glad that you're saying it because that is my experience. Yeah. It's never been easy because my aspirations keep changing. Right. Yep. So when you first start, you buy about a $3 million deal and I raised a million dollars, million four, and that million four was, I had to move heaven and earth to raise a million four. Yeah. If I had a million four deal now, I'd be like, oh, gosh, this is going to be... It'd be like, no, I wouldn't even think about it, right? Yeah. But now agree. we're raising like 20 million. And well, now twenty million, that's a stretch for Corey. Me really paying attention and being focused and getting it done. So, yeah. Jason, that is the absolute right answer. And that means you're growing because the bigger deals you get, actually, the more stable they are. Yeah. I believe. So... Great story about the capital. thank you for sharing that, right? So I think a lot of people can relate to that story is, and from what I think I heard from you is that the challenge really is you set your mind to it, right? At least that's what I, what I heard when you told that story, and I think there's a very common denominator when I look at successful people that actually do the business versus people that want to try it, right? The people that say I'm doing this business will not stop, will be relentless, right? And that's what you had to do to raise that first piece of money. Even though it was no, 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 no. You just kept on going till you found a yes. You all had to go all the way to, like, you exhausted all your friends and family. So then you're just going to different groups. Do I have that one guy? Who's got a guy? It wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough money that it would make a difference. And then you found it. Yep. I'm sure he asked for a good piece of the deal.
2: It was very reasonable.
1: Good. See, even better. Got yeah. a, had a boy, yeah. right? But you probably, if you would have asked for more, you probably would have given it to him. But you're smart to negotiate.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Luckily, I came in. I basically had a model and and just sort of put them in there. And it it was plugging. This is how we do it, right? I probably could have negotiated a little bit better. But at the time, it's more important to get the deal done and and learn
1: than it is to bicker back and forth about some percentage points of ownership. Jason, totally couldn't agree more. Like one of the biggest holdups that I see in a lot of new investors is to get hung up on trying to make such big sides of their shares. And the guys, if you don't have experience, you don't really have a whole lot, right? The more it's experience that will get you. And Jason, you said this, as you started becoming a thought leader and putting yourself out there, getting on the podcast, sharing your story, letting people know that you take money. That is the snowball effect, right? And that takes a minute to get going. And that's what you've done. So, congratulations on that. Thank you. What else do would you want to share and tell us about why you like the affordable housing space? I think in this market, we've seen changes, right? We've definitely
2: seen cap rate compression, and now we have interest rates rising. And so, I think that the foundation, the fundamentals of affordable housing are very strong. I feel like the tenant-based affordable is not going anywhere. It
1: just grew. it just got bigger yeah exactly right because housing just priced itself out of the sky and you're like well rents have been going to skyrocketing you've got a bigger client base database of clients now
2: yep also what i would say is something that I didn't mention before, but there's also more attractive financing. So, or when I say capital stacks. So, whereas in affordable, I mean, in market rate, you may be getting 75, 80%. In affordable, we've gotten quotes up to 90% leverage on deals. Also, what you find is other government-sponsored agencies, CDBG banks, home loans, nonprofits that you can layer up So you be able to find another company that may help in that capital stack. So you get some mezzanine debt. And what happens is you're able to juice those returns even more for your investors because you've got other layers there.
1: Because they want the tax credit piece of it, is that what they want out of it? What's in it for them too? Or is it just layering your debt because there's more lenders available? The government has realized that affordable housing is a crisis.
2: And so they allocate funds. And then you also have, nonprofits as I mentioned, and other government agencies that are just trying to administer funds. So some of them come in okay. the form of grants. Some of them come in the form of
1: so they got money to spend, they need to put it in place and it needs to be for a specific item that makes sense and checks their box. Exactly. So knowing that
2: you're able to basically support a deal. And so in this market, right, God forbid there's something that goes wrong with your deal. But in an affordable deal, if something did go wrong, you've got Another layer there than just the bank, right? You can go to somebody else and say, hey, can you help us out here? Can we get some low interest rate? And and I feel like the government is really working with us to try to help solve this problem.
1: Right, you're solving a need truly identified and they're putting dollars and funding too. So listen, our government, government is a huge spender. A lot of our GDP is the government. So if you can be on the receiving side of that, sometimes that sounds like a pretty damn good win because it's pretty much guaranteed when it shows up, right? Yeah. Yep. You've not talked about that part, but talk about the payment history. Is it pretty good?
2: Yeah. So when you have some properties that are all Section 8, like that's what you call a half contract, they dedicate the whole property to be Section 8. And then you have people that have vouchers, but those tenants that come in that, that maybe they're getting a portion of their rent paid by the government is consistent, yeah. right? In single family, I had a Section 8 runner. She was the best tenant I ever had, right? She just Always on time, always paid on the first, never
1: late. Nine years, right? Yeah, and the government pays on time all the time as well. Yeah, they're pretty. So yeah, they're pretty consistent as well. Now, last part or last thought of that I have on that piece of Section Eight, or I want to call it Section Eight, but well. VASH program. Have you ever used any of the VASH program veterans? I know you said you're a Marine. There's a subsection in section eight that's for dedicated for VASH or military vets that maybe have disabilities or things like that that you can have again. Do you do any of that? No. We haven't gotten into any of that. It's one of those niche of a niche, right? And so I've heard of the programs
2: and how they work. We had
1: one property way back when, this is almost ten years ago, that that's what we did was we created a VASH. Program. Okay, It's really cool because we had a bunch of veterans on property. And so we had some camaraderie, right? They had caseworkers that would come and help them. And then I had guaranteed money from the government. Nice. Supporting your military. It's like the trifecta, man. Yeah. Everything's winning, right? Yeah. No, that's like a great win to be
2: able to do that. And again, you're doing something that's necessary, right? You're you're providing service for people that need it.
1: Felt really good, right? I always love it when you can feel really good about when you're doing these properties, yeah, we got to make a profit. That's our job. But there's lots of ways to do it to help other people as well. And I think that's what you're trying to talk about, Jason, is helping the fellow man out there. The one, you know, I always say, there's a picture I remember looking at a long time ago. If I could find this picture, I would buy it. But it was a picture of Jesus. And he was on the water, right? And he was reaching down and he's grabbing a guy that's drowning. You see his hand just barely coming up and Jesus is pulling him out. But his other hand of the guy that was drowning is way down, and he's reaching out and pulling up somebody that's a little bit farther down than he is, right? And it just goes on and on and on and on. You see this endless chain of someone that's got one hand up trying to get up to where you're going, and you got another hand trying to bring that other person up with you. In essence, I think that's what we do in the multifamily space, especially in the affordable housing probably more so than ever, of helping our fellow man and bringing up and making change. So... Thanks for all you do. I think that's a big piece. So with that said, do you have any books or anything that you've been reading lately that's really moved the needle for you?
2: Yeah. Number one book I recommend right now is The Science of Getting Rich. I really like that. Wallace D. Wallace. I think he just, from what I've learned, right, there's a bunch of teachings on, on this stuff, metaphysical or whatever, but that book is so concise about how to do it. And if you just want to fast
1: track it and say, just do this, I think it's very impactful. Awesome. Awesome. And then what piece of advice would you give for anybody that's listening that's somewhat a little bit newer and is really making moves to get into the industry? What advice would you like to give them? I think you hit on it when
2: you said the people that you see win and the people who are relentless and they don't quit, right? And I think that what I would say for somebody who's new is, is one, make a decision. That's the number one thing that holds people back is that you do something and you do it for six months and then you say, oh, I shouldn't have started that in the first place. Now you're no longer a multifamily investor. Now you want to be an Airbnb person, right? Or whatever it is. Or maybe you're a stock person or you're playing at Forex markets, whatever. Make that decision first. And then commit to it. And then after that, just find the person who's doing it. Get as close as you can to them. And you'll learn a lot and accelerate. Back. Yeah.
1: Totally, totally agree, man. Mentors are the key. That's the biggest life hack, man. It really is. To everything, yep. right? Right. So Jason, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Guys, if you're listening right now, there's so many ways to make money in this business. I'm a true proponent, no matter what you do in life, it starts with one thing, and that's the power of your mind. Your mind is the most powerful thing you possess, and sadly enough, most of us are not using it. You've not engaged it, you're still in park, and damn it, you gotta put that thing in drive, and you gotta go around the block, and you gotta get used to driving and going fast, and it's like almost racing. Racers, that they learn the curves. They learn how, to, how the car handles. That is how your brain works. It wants to go fast. It wants to accomplish. It wants to give you success beyond measure. But before you do that, you have to engage it, guys. You have to put it in gear. You have to believe it, guys. Like I say on every podcast, if you believe it, you can achieve it. And your paradise is possible.